We're now getting to the second step on this dependent arising. The first one was that aging and death are due to birth. Now the Buddha says, and Ananda, if one is asked, is birth due to a specific condition, one should say it is. If one is asked through what condition is their birth, one should say, with existence as condition, there is birth. I've, I've said this already, that the word existence can also um, be translated in English as the word becoming. It's um, both meaning the same thing. But we usually um, relate to birth as conception in the womb, which is the physical uh, appearance. But what is necessary for that to even take place is also the appearance of rebirth consciousness. So existence is said by the Buddha to be the condition for birth. Now we have two kinds of existence that are pertinent here. And one is called the decisive support, and the other one is called the specific support. And this is quite important, because both of them are part and parcel of our own makeup. None of this is theoretical. All of it is directing one's attention to the causes and results and the impersonality of it all. Now, the specific condition is actually the next thing that happens in this dependent arising, and I'll just mention it now, it's clinging. A clinging to life. A clinging to being, particularly the clinging to being somebody, namely me. Well, that's a specific condition that makes existence possible. But there is a very important condition that's a decisive condition. This is just a technical term. It decides. It decides and it's a deciding support system. And that's the karma, the karma existence. Now, in this particular instance, I will elaborate on this a little because it is not only important, but it is um, the inner structure of what is happening with us, to us, by us. Karma making. The Buddha said, karma o monks I declare is intention. Now intention is in the mind. So if we don't look after our mind, we are not going to be able to have good intention. We have three doors. That is the thought, the speech, and the action. Everything depends on mind. Everything depends on what we think. Obviously, we also speak and act. And we make karma every time that we have an intention. Now, people often say they're saying something or doing something and there was no intention. That isn't true. There was no mindfulness of the intention. 
The intention is there, otherwise it can't happen. It's just that there's no awareness, no mindfulness of it. So we don't have that excuse at all, that we haven't got the intention that is not something that saves us from the result. Now, we also need to understand that karma and its resultants is not crime and punishment. Although sometimes it may appear like that. It's strictly a totally impersonal cause and effect. That's all it is. If we put causes in the path in our lives, we get the effects. And we also need to remember Nobody else gets the effect. Only we do. Whatever we have intentionally thought, said, or done, we get the effect. Whatever somebody else has done or said or thought, they get the effect. This is simple and obvious, isn't it? And yet, most people are totally confused by it. They think that they have, with their deeds, influenced somebody else, and then it's their karma, and then somebody else is doing something. There is no such uh, conglomeration of causes and effects. Obviously, if we do good things, we may actually influence somebody to do good things, but that's no longer our karma if somebody else is doing something good. It's that person's karma. If our intention is to influence somebody to the good, then we're making good karma. Whether the result is actually happening, whether that other person is actually going to do something that's good, has nothing to do with it. We have to realize, and if we practice a while, we do after a while, that whatever it is that we generate in our own mind, that is the effect that we get. What other people generate in their minds, that's the effect that they get. Now we have two ways of earning or getting the results of our karma. One is our life support. It's happening now. Most of the things that happen in our life this time around are due to the causes that we have generated this time. Because most of the things that we do or think are not of the greatest significance. Let's face it. Day, days go by, they come and they go, and we think the same things over and over again. It's not um, something that is um, so of such shattering importance that one could say this is a peak experience. Most of the things are minor, but they are negative or positive, even though they are minor. So our life actually goes along with the resultants of that negativity or positivity. And the more negative we are, the more negative results we get. What else? 
It's not possible any other way. The more positive we are, the more positive results we get. And so everything that happens in our life this time as our life support is actually mostly done in this life. Major and uh, really decisive actions or thoughts may have come to us from past lives. But again, we have no way of knowing that. The Buddha said, karma and its resultants is like a spider's web. The threads of a spider's web are so interwoven one cannot find beginning nor end. And the same it is with our karmic action and resultant. We do not know what happened in past lifetimes. A Buddha knows. And for him, that kind of knowledge can be helpful for other people. For us, it doesn't matter. Whatever we've done, that's it. And it wasn't E.B. anyway. I was just a person. So with that as a foundation also in this life, we have something that we build on. But it isn't fate. And this is one of the misunderstandings, and that was one of the misunderstandings in the Buddha's time. Some of the teachers said that it didn't matter what we do. Everything is preordained. So it doesn't matter whether we do good or bad. And there was another teacher, some other teachers, and they said that it didn't matter what we do, good or bad, there are no resultants. And the Buddha very vehemently negated those statements and said, these are bad teachers. They teach the wrong doctrine and they lead the people astray. There's no such thing as because he was the Buddha, he was going to say everything is fine and all right. If people teach the wrong doctrine, that is something that he took quite seriously because the people that heard that doctrine would be led astray. Now, obviously, this is very nice. It doesn't matter what we do, that kind of uh, doctrine. There are no resultants, so we can do what we like. We can just uh, indulge ourselves any which way. We can have as much uh, uh, fun as we like. We can uh, grab what we want to have. There are no resultants. That's one doctrine. And the other doctrine says it's all fate. Well, that's very nice too. So again, it doesn't matter what we do. So, of course, there were quite a number of followers for both doctrines. But here, in the Buddha's doctrine, that doesn't work. He said, karma has resultants. And no matter what kind of karma we bring along, it is not fate that takes care of all the resultants. He said, there are four different kinds of people. One lot gets born in the light and goes to the light. Another lot gets born in the light and goes to the dark. Another lot gets born in the dark and goes to the dark, and another lot gets born in the dark and goes to the light. <coughs> the words dark and light are meant to mean that one gets born in very good circumstances and goes to better ones or to worse ones. One might be 
son or daughter of rich parents have all the benefits of excellent education and wind up a drug addict. That's quite possible. But then there are people who get born in the dark. They don't have any advantages at all. And because they work on themselves and they work hard, they make something very nice and a good thing out of their lives. So it depends on us. We have choices. And this is the important aspect of the teaching, that we have a choice. And actually we're exercising our choices constantly. We're constantly making a choice. I'm going to meditate. I'm not going to meditate. I'm going to take it easy. I'm really going to try hard. I'm going to go to a meditation course. No, I'm going to go to the beach. We're constantly making choices. And the choices are very often, although they appear to be minor, extremely significant. They may have very significant results. Now, although the Buddha said that it is like an interwoven, like a spider's web. It's not impossible to see in our own lives cause and effect. If we look back and find something in our life where we did something particularly good, maybe we can see an effect from it. Maybe something particularly good happened. It's even easier to see the effect of something particularly bad. We can see that quite easily. So we can make connections in that way, but we will not be able to make connections over past lifetimes. And it's totally unnecessary because it's all done with. It's all finished. There's nothing to be done about it. This happened in the past and cannot be resurrected. That we are now carrying it with us may be to our great benefit. It is, for instance, a possible thought that everyone who is a meditator in this lifetime and actually makes the meditation happen has done that many times before. And if we make it happen quickly, we've definitely made it, we've definitely done it many times before. So we can be grateful for that. If we have a lot of physical disability, well, who knows what we did in a past life. It's all forgotten. It doesn't matter anymore. We have all the choices this time. So the things that we do now with our choices, which all happen in the mind, that is the support system for this life. That's what's happening. And we need not ever think that the deeds of others have a real significance. They are triggers for us to react. And that's our own karma. So for instance, Let's say somebody is angry at us and abusive. Well, that's his karma. But if that makes me angry, then it's my karma. I've used that trigger to respond. I don't have to. In this particular instance, there's a lovely story which is worth remembering because one is always tempted to react in the like manner if somebody does these um, unpleasant things. There's a story of a Brahmin who came to listen to one of the Buddha's discourses. Now the Brahmins were notorious adversaries to the Buddha because he was curtailing their livelihood. He said that 
the Brahmin, who were the priest caste, pouring ghee and milk over the Buddha, uh, over the god statues, and then chanting and promising that this would help for people to have a wonderful rebirth, was all nonsense. That they had to do it themselves. Now, obviously, some people believed that and started being followers of the Buddha, so the Brahmins had less income. So he had a fair few adversaries amongst the Brahmins. This particular Brahmin was one of them. He came to listen to the discourse that the Buddha gave, and while the Buddha was still talking, he was walking up and down in front of the Buddha, which in itself is rather impolite. And when the Buddha made a a short pause, this Brahmin started abusing the Buddha. He said that he was teaching the wrong doctrine and um, that he was taking the men away from the families because they became monks, that the fields were unattended, and that he should be thrown out of the country. So when he was finished with all that, the Buddha said to him, Brahmin, do you sometimes have guests in your house? And the Brahmin said, Yes, of course I have guests in my house. And the Buddha said, And when you have guests in in your house, do you offer them hospitality? Do you give them food and drink? And the Brahmin said, Well, of course I do. And the Buddha said, And if they don't accept your food and drink, to whom does it belong? And the Brahmin said, Well, it belongs to me, of course, belongs to me. And the Buddha said, That's right, belongs to you, Brahmin. So the abuse that the Brahmin was heaping upon the Buddha belonged to the Brahmin, as long as the Buddha didn't have any reaction to it. Now, if you can remember that story, every time this sort of thing happens to you in your lives, you'll have a wonderful time. (laughs) Because what happens too is when it does happen, you will recognize the fact that the other person is unhappy and you can have compassion. So... The Brahmin, or whoever is yelling and abusing, is making bad karma. But we only make it when we react to that. And that is the same in all instances. So we have to be able to distinguish what's my karma and what's somebody else's karma. It's very important to be able to distinguish that. If we have the intention of influencing for the good, then that is our good karma whether that influence is actually happening, that's the other person's karma. Is that clear? It's very important. Most people uh, do get confused with that because we seem to interact all the time. What we do, but we can interact by choice and not by impulse. And that's the whole difference. Interacting by impulse makes us do whatever our impulses dictate. But when we interact by choice, then we can choose that, which makes good karma. So in our daily lives, good karma making is of the utmost importance because it does give us an easy flow, but, and there's a big but behind that, we have to recognize also what karma making really is. Now, if you remember, when I was enumerating the 12 factors of dependent arising, the first one was ignorance. You may not remember, but that's okay. And the second one was the potter 
with the good and bad pots, which was the volitional mental formation, which is karma making. So we make karma out of ignorance, good and bad karma, both. Now, what are we ignorant of? That we're deluded into thinking we're me. So, karma is only made as long as we feel, believe, and think, this is me being good, this is me being bad. Only then can we make karma. So even the good karma is not the final and the utmost ideal. In fact, in another discourse, which is called the Four Nutriments, the Buddha gives a simile, which is very drastic. He says, there is a person that's being pulled towards a pit of glowing coals by two strong men, one holding the right hand and one holding the left hand. And they're getting this person nearer and nearer to this pit with glowing coals just ready to throw that person into that pit. Now, one hand is the good karma and the other hand is the bad karma. And both take us to that pit with glowing coals. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't try to make good karma because if we don't, it's even worse. But what is this pit with glowing coals? That's coming back here again. Coming back here, which we, ourselves, who are sitting here now, will not actually know about. Because that particular mind continuum that we are at present experiencing isn't going to know that what's going to happen after our physical death. But because we can also relate that to every single day in our lives, it will make it far more graphic and also far more accessible. Now let's say we have made good and bad karma today. Everybody makes good and bad karma all the time. Meditators make a lot of good karma. Meditation, the intention, is very good karma. But any negative thought makes bad, bad karma. So tomorrow morning, we wake up with the resultants of that good and bad <coughs> karma that we have made. And these resultants are then, again, the disquiet in the mind, the reactions to outer conditions, the hopes for something better, the plans for the future, the regrets for the past, the worries about what's going to happen. All that is a pit of glowing coals, which we cannot avoid, even though we've made good karma. We all make good and bad karma. And that pit of glowing coals is nothing other than rebirth. But we can use rebirth as every morning. We actually get reborn every sing single second, but let's use every morning. Every morning. Now, in a meditation course, there is far less of all this disquiet. But if we just remember for a moment what happens in our daily lives, every morning it starts all over again. And there's always the hope it's going to be better. It's going to work out. It's all going to be the way I like it. Nothing ever is going to be wrong again. No hope. 
As long as there's somebody there that wants something, there's no hope that it's all going to be all right. Because the wanting alone is already dukkha. So this is the warning that we get when we look at the absolute truth. And as I told you from the beginning, this particular discourse goes to the absolute truth right from the start. It doesn't meander around and trying to be loving and compassionate and a good person and all the rest of it. That's taken for granted. It goes right to the absolute truth of the misery of the me delusion, which is called ignorance. So whether we make good or bad karma, it is the decisive support for our rebirth. And this rebirth, which I have now related to every day and every morning, in this particular discourse by the Buddha, because in Asia, rebirth is a, is a given. It's taken for granted. Everybody talks about it, knows about it. Nobody even ever questions it. Is it this or is it that? He, so he talks about it in that manner. This rebirth that we're going to have because of the fact that while we're making all this karma, we think it's me doing it. And because we think it's me doing it, we also regret the things we have either done or not done. And we also regret immensely the things other people have done, even though they have absolutely nothing to do with our own karma. The only thing that we're doing is reacting. Now, any regret for what anybody else has done, which wasn't right, and there's so much of it going on that isn't right, is totally useless for us because regret is negative. Guilt is negative. So all of that has nothing to do with our own karma. So while we are engaged in being alive and making good and bad karma, we also need to remember that our primary aspect of Buddhist meditation is to get rid of the me delusion. That's the only way that good and bad karma will not have results. You see, when a person who is fully enlightened thinks, says or does, there's nobody in there, sitting in there, in that person, thinking or feeling that this is me doing it. And because that is absent, there's no karmic resultant. There's no karma being made. Is that clear or do I have to repeat that? Quite clear? Okay. <laughs> when a person is fully enlightened, there is no karma being made because there is no thought or feeling of I am thinking, saying or doing. Until full enlightenment, there is constant karma being made. Okay. <laughs> now with our daily lives and daily karma making, we also, of course, are ever nearer approaching death. And approaching death is the physical end of this body, as everybody knows. And there have been so many ideas and fantasies. What happens to the rest of us? 
surely were not only the body. Now, if you have done this particular method, which I uh, suggested to you, pretending you have a zipper in front, taking all the bits and pieces out, and then trying to figure out whether where the me is in all that, you will already have agreed, at least theoretically, to the, fa- to the statement that I'm not the body. That's still a logical conclusion. It will eventually one day become a feeling. But in order to have that become a feeling, one has to attend with great diligence to the factor of impermanence in all that exists again and again. As long as we try to make permanent that which is so obviously impermanent, namely everything, so long it's only a logical conclusion that all these bits and pieces couldn't be me. First of all, they don't look very nice and uh, not attractive and they don't have any kind of uh, form to them, so how could this be me? But this is still not enough, but it's a good beginning. But then this body breaks up and disappears. It goes back to dust or gets burnt right away and uh, disappears. In that way, it's just ashes. So what about the rest of us? So the mental continuum, which is the carrier of our karma resultants, has within it the rebirth consciousness. And the rebirth consciousness is our craving to be. We don't give up craving to be just because the body disappears. And this craving to be is our great problem. But it is based again on this delusion that there's really somebody here, that this is somebody. And with that craving comes the rebirth consciousness, and that rebirth consciousness enters the womb at the time of conception. That's what the Buddha said. And with that entering at the time of conception, we have a new person. So there's absolutely no question in the Buddha's dispensation when the new person arises, whether it's at three weeks, three months, six months, nine months, at conception. No question at all. There is the rebirth consciousness. And this is one of the things which is made quite clear by the, by the Buddha's teaching in this respect. Now, the rebirth consciousness carries with it that what has happened in this life and all the past ones, but particularly this one. And it's given a simile by the Buddha to understand this better. And the way he has described it is like a a herd of cows which are locked into a barn. And when the door opens, the one that is nearest the door will go out first. If there isn't one that's nearest the door, then the habitual leader will go out first. If there isn't such a one, then the strongest will go out first, pushes the way to the front. And if there isn't such a one either, then they're all going to try and get out at the same time, and there's going to be a big mess between them. And this is the reference to our last thought. And this is why I have already mentioned to you 
that when you go to bed, the best thing to do is to have loving kindness at the last thought because that's nearest the door of waking up. And as you have that nearest the door of waking up, you may be able to wake up with it. It's quite obvious that we have the those things that happen to us at the last moment in our daily activities. They are also prominent in the first moments again. The same happens from life to life. Because falling asleep is just the same thing. It's a short death. It's very short. It's only six or seven hours. Rebirth can be that quick too. Usually it takes a little longer, but it can be that quick. <coughs> so it's a very short death. Now we can really use the falling asleep and the waking up as the primary examples of rebirth because then it makes much, is much easier to relate to it. So that's the one that's nearest the door. If we don't have anything nearest the door, then the habitual leader. So if we are habitually anxious, habitually worried, habitually angry, habitually upset, well, that's how we wake up, of course. If we are habitually happy, that's how we wake up. So we can check that tomorrow morning. How do we wake up? What are my habits, my mental habits? Can I change them? Then, if that isn't happening, if there isn't uh, an habitual leader, then the strongest. So maybe I have, in my mind continuum, have some, something that I'm constantly thinking about, either good or bad. If it's something bad, that will be with me the next morning. If it's something very good, that will be with me next morning. So this is the strongest thing. And then, if nothing like this is, and there's a whole melee of different thoughts and different things. Now, as far as rebirth is concerned, this last uh, thought or this, uh, the leader or the strongest are the direction finders for rebirth. They push us in that direction where we're going to take rebirth. So that's why it's totally senseless to blame one's parents for that what's happened to us. We picked them. So they can blame us for picking them. But we, but we blaming them is totally senseless. That was the direction we took. That was the thought process that was going on. So we took that direction and that's where we wound up. And then if they were if it was a good situation we got born into, then we have to make more out of it. If it's a bad one, we have harder work to do. But no matter where we wind up, it's always possible to make that the starting point for a spiritual growth for our own lives. So these are the possibilities that we have in mind. And since we're now, at this point in time, not concerned with dying and being reborn, although we should be, we can at least be concerned with falling asleep and waking up. And the thought process is the most significant thing that is happening with us. The body is one thing. That's not that important. But our thought process, that's the most significant thing. So if we don't watch out for it, we can always wind up in some negative result. And this is actually what the good karma making is all about. The 
care and concern that we take to keep on an even keel and do the good things. That's not always easy. Sometimes it's much easier to uh, um, just go along with whatever is happening or not even think about it. But we are only hurting ourselves. Nobody else gets hurt. Only we do. And if we have an intention of learning to be our own best friend, we will keep that in mind, that we need to watch the thought processes. Now, the rebirth that we would probably take, and that's this whole existence business, which is the becoming, which is shown in the picture as the uh, pregnant woman, would be something where we are attached to. So we would come back very likely to the same country where we were before, unless we hated it and wanted to be somewhere else. But the hate draws us as closely to what we hate as the greed for it. So this is also a very significant point. If we have in this life somebody whom we hate, we better get rid of that hate. Otherwise, we're going to have that same person around our neck next time. Because you see, what's happening is if there's somebody we hate in this life, that person is hanging around our neck all the time. Because we think of that person and we have hate in the heart for that person. The same, of course, is with the greed of the attachment. So what we also experience in this life are close connections to people that we've all been with before. And we probably have all, at some time or other, had an experience where we met someone and thought we'd known that person all our lives and then realized that we've just met that person. And by the same token, we might have even met somebody whom we disliked at first sight, hasn't even said a word yet, that person. These are, of course, recurrences of contact and relationships that we've had. So one of the things that we need to do in this life is to resolve all relationships with other people, whether on the physical level that we see them and talk to them, or only on the mental level that we think about them, that we do not have the greed of attachment nor the hate of dislike and rejection, so that we feel at ease about anyone. And if there is anyone in our lives whom we think we have hurt, it's a very good idea to apologize. Because all this keeps coming back over and over again. And who wants to have that again and again? When we think about it, we can really understand that rebirth is not desirable. But we will only understand it when we have seen Dukkha to its fullest extent. This particular sutta talks about it in no uncertain terms, so maybe by the end of it we'll know dukkha, really. Dukkha from a totally objective standpoint, not from subjective, not I'm suffering, but from the objectivity of it is, it exists. And if we want to have as little of it as possible while we're still operating under the me delusion, it is very... Uh, advisable to make a clean break with all our greeds and our hates and look at people as just companions on this path 
which is a difficult one. Being a human being is not easy. Being a good human being even more difficult. So these are, are possibilities where we can use this uh, understanding that we have met, we've been together with people before to very good advantage. I also fantasize, and I do that personally, that everybody that comes to these meditation courses has sat around at the Buddha's time trying to become enlightened and never made it. So they're here again trying to do it the next time. But that's my personal fantasy. It's got nothing to do with the Buddha's teaching. So we are going to get probably reborn in the same place where we were before and that's where we got all these wonderful English ghosts from they love their castle so much they can't leave it <laughs> they're going to live there even when they're ghosts and they probably don't even know they're ghosts um, so it is very likely that we come back to the same country unless we had a different wish at that time uh, at death that we want to go somewhere else and we usually come together with people whom we have known before in close relationships. And if that close relationship is not to our liking, we better stop hating at this time, otherwise we're going to have it again. It's one of the exams which we get. And if we don't pass it, if we can't pass this exam, then, of course, we're going to be put back in the class and do it all over again. These are important considerations to make our minds far more equanimous and at ease without these ups and downs of likes and dislikes. If we have been able to do the jhanas in this lifetime and did not gain insight into the me delusion, the Buddha says, if we have the first four jhanas, we will be reborn in the fine material realms, which are the higher consciousness realms, which are the realms which are called the Deva realms, and it is, we can look at it in that way, of a higher consciousness. It is said that in those realms there's so little dukkha that most of them don't practice, but some do. And that because they don't practice, they fall down again from those deva realms back down here and then we've got to do it all over again. But this is what the first four jhanas will do for us. The other four, the next four, the, the non-material jhanas will give us a rebirth in the non-material realms, which are much higher realms where there is practically no body and in the highest four no body at, no body at all, only mind. And those are very long-lasting, but also impermanent. And those highest realms are called the Brahma realms, which are the God realms, because the beings there are of such long-lasting um, lifespans and are so pure already that they think of themselves as being omniscient and omnipotent. And, but they are also impermanent, the Buddha said. So he does not advocate looking for rebirth in those realms, but it is a natural rebirth for those who can do the jhanas. And until full enlightenment, there is, even for people who have already had uh, experiences of Nibbana, there is a wish for that kind of rebirth because it appears to be paradise. 
And that's the paradise thought that people have. This is wonderful. There I'm going to be without dukkha. And this is a natural wish. But when one transcends the me idea, obviously that wish also goes. Because if there's nobody there, who's going to be reborn in the highest realms? But there's also in this... um, in the fine material realms, there's also supposed to be a wish-fulfilling gem. And we often see Buddha statues, especially Burmese ones, standing, and the left hand is holding sort of like a, an acorn. If you've ever seen that and wondered what the acorn is, it's a wish-fulfilling gem. And if you rub it, supposedly, you get every wish fulfilled. So obviously nobody practices, they just get their wishes fulfilled. So most people would love to be reborn there. But again... It's impermanent. That too doesn't last. And then uh, one gets reborn here again and then one has to start meditating again and get so knees again and all the rest of it. Existence has two aspects. The becoming in the womb, the becoming every morning, the becoming every moment. Now, if you've ever been... Uh, attentive to moment by moment, you must have noticed that each moment is gone and there's a new one. Now, actually, our rebirth happens each moment. There is no pause, and this is what happens with actual rebirth too. There is no pause. The mind doesn't disappear. The karma resultants don't disappear. The rebirth consciousness doesn't disappear. There is no pause. There's only a pause between the physical body being cremated and the new physical body being conceived because the being that is being conceived needs to have the opportune place for it. And that's why it said, life, it's much easier to meditate. Because the past is irrevocably gone and the future is yet to come. These are the words of the Buddha. And the irrevocably gone is totally uninteresting. And the yet to come is nothing but conjecture. So if we actually know that our whole life concerns this one moment, then we could meditate without any disturbance. And if we know that our whole life concerns this one moment, we could be attentive to this moment. And if we are, we could watch our mind better so that it doesn't go into any negative states at all, such as guilt or regret or anxiety or worry. And if we watch each moment with that kind of attention, it will become quite clear to us that this rebirth that people often wonder about and make conjectures about and uh, try to have... uh, uh, rebirthing and uh, actually experience what they were like as babies. I don't, can't imagine that anybody would want to know what they were like as babies. But anyway, this kind of thing is totally unnecessary because we have it in each moment and there is no pause in the same way there is no pause between our lives. So we've got constant dukkha. If you have watched a baby lately, you will know Nothing but dukkha. Screaming its head off because things are not the way that the baby would like them to be. Feeling totally frustrated because it can't do what it would like to do. So we have to go through that 
And then we have this time now where we can actually recognize it for what it is. Now, the rebirth that we have every moment is not only mental, but it is very much so and easily recognizable because you can see that every moment a thought either arises or ceases. So there's something new happening unless one gets totally concentrated. When there is total concentration, one can become aware of the fact that even the totally concentrated mind, if one wants to put one's mind on that, has the quality of movement. Everything in the whole universe constantly moves. In, out, in, out, in, out. And even the mind that is thinking a thought or that is concentrated, has that same movement. Now that takes a fair bit of concentrated attention and it is very, very um, significant because it shows us that nothing is static and we're constantly trying to make it so. So with that, having the rebirth every moment, it is also possible to let go of the past. And people who have lived a while usually have something in their past which is better let go of. It's much better to just let it go, be, let it be buried in the past. So when we have that new birth, either every morning or from moment to moment, we can see that we're a new person. We're a new person that has totally different thoughts and ambitions, different ideas, different feelings. And it is quite clear to us then, as we watch ourselves like that, that everything that has happened before need no longer be our concern because it happened to somebody else. I always advocate to take a look at your old photo albums. You've heard me all say that before. Have a look. Is that you? Have a look at the thoughts you had if you wrote them down two years ago. If anybody keeps a diary. Is that me? I don't have those thoughts now. So, moment-to-moment -moment awareness would be ideal for every meditator. Would be ideal to understand rebirth from the ground up. Would be ideal to understand this becoming of existence. Because everything that we do in this moment, because I think it's me doing it, makes that exist as me in the next moment. I think that might be enough for one evening. If you have questions, this is the time you can ask them. Mm -hmm. um. When you mentioned that someone that you might have hurt and you advised apologizing to them, if there's for any reason it's not possible to physically, verbally apologize, uh, but you can clear it in your own mind, really, if you can really clear it, is that just as powerful? Mm -hmm. Yes, certainly. That's, what's, that's what, it, what matters. That's the, that's the whole thing that matters. The verbal or written apology is just a manifestation of what the mind is doing. That's where it's, where it's really at.
Yes. Free from rebirth, yes. What is the alternative to rebirth? Sorry? What is the alternative to rebirth? Non-rebirth. Like nothing. Okay. Uh, I think I told the same story on the seven-day course, but I'll tell it again because it's really the only one that, that fits. Um, it's a very famous story, and it concerns one of the... Um, wanderers of, others, of another sect, Vachagotta, who went to see the Buddha and asked him what happens to the Buddha, to the enlightened one after death. And does he still exist? And the Buddha said no. And then Vachagotta said, and does he not exist? And the Buddha said no. And Vachagotta said, and does he neither exist nor not exist? And the Buddha said no. And Vachagotta said, and does he either exist or not exist? And the Buddha said no. And Vachagotta said, but sir, now I've given you every possibility and you say no to everything. What happens? Really? Tell me. So the Buddha said, please get some um, bits and pieces of wood and make a fire. So he made a fire, Vachagotta. And then he said, Buddha said, now throw some more branches onto this fire. And he did. And the Buddha said, and how is the fire going? And Vachagotta said, it's going very well. And so the Buddha said, now stop throwing branches on. So he did. And after a while the Buddha said, what happened to the fire? And Vachagotta said, well, it went out. And the Buddha said, did it go down or up? This side or that side? Forward or backward? And Vachagotta said, no, it just went out. He said, that's what happens to the enlightened one. No more branches thrown on the fire of passions. Fire goes out. And this question, interestingly enough, goes all through the Pali Canon and it goes through every course. <laughs> what happens to the enlightened one after death? <laughs> Anything else? Yes. The birth and death could also be looked at as impermanence of all phenomena, not just my, the me or, or the physical mm. body or anything else. Mm-hmm. And therefore the the ignorance in the first step, which is conditioned by death, would be conditioned by impermanence or not seeing the impermanence? Yes, that's quite correct, because any one of the three characteristics are a gateway to liberation or to wisdom inside. And the three characteristics are impermanence, dukkha, and substancelessness. So whether we see one of them or another one, it doesn't matter. Each one is the gateway for total liberation. So when we see, when there's death and we don't see impermanence, obviously we have the ignorance again. And if we don't see the substancelessness, we have it too. If we don't see the dukkha, same thing. Either one of the three. Well, if we see them, will liberate us. If we don't see them, keep us there. Yes. I thought you were saying that our sense of self is the sticky thing that that keeps it together. Now, to the extent that one sees that there is an impermanent entity that is flowing, um, why does that stickiness still continue? 
You tell me. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why does it continue? I mean, the tendencies seem to... They're, they're there. They just keep... The tendency... Tendencies I mean, for take, what? Take, for instance, the, the sort of reaction of irritation. Yeah. When something... Uh, That's due to, to sense of self. Irritation is due to sense of self. Or, you know, the business of sitting and the fact that there is a certain discomfort mm-hmm. that occurs. It, it's there. Uh, it's uh, not because I particularly need to believe that I am sitting there and experiencing it. The experience no. exists. No, that is a different story altogether. <laughs> the Buddha said that the unenlightened person has two arrows or two darts that hurt them and the enlightened one has one so the unenlightened is bothered (coughs) by the body and reacts with the mind but the enlightened one is also bothered by the body and also gets sick and dies but is not bothered in the mind so surely this body is always having some problem but the mind does not have to react to that if there's nobody in here, who is going to react? The body is unpleasant, sure. The Buddha had uh, uh, died also, and had. Uh, he said when he was um, uh, quite old, he said to Ananda, this body is like an old cart being held together by leather thongs. It's very, very creaky. So the body, yes. The mind, no. The enlightened mind is always enlightened and doesn't react to the body. Irritation is due to sense of self. And any 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 reaction is sense to, is due to sense of self. I mean, the, the, the mind seems to have a potential, it seems to have a, I mean, it almost seems inherent in it uh, to interact with what is what it's connected to. Sure, that's human nature, but enlightenment is just is beyond human nature. One time the Buddha was sitting outside a, a village and uh, he was uh, eating out of his arms bowl and apparently he was, there was such a shining glow to him that a wanderer stopped and asked him, are you a human being? And the Buddha said, no. Are you a god? No. What are you? Enlightened is not the same human nature anymore. It's transcending human nature. Sure, those things we're doing all the time, all these things, constantly. And that's why we're having problems. Because we're so doing you're saying that the enlightened mind is different in, in, in some significant way to the mind that we are currently dealing with? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> in a very significant way. <laughs> yeah. Well, then you say, too, that um, we, it's our own karma that we make the choices that we do. But we're making choices with an ignorant mind. But if we make a choice to meditate, we're making very good karma. And then if we make a choice to get concentrated, we're making even better karma. And then if we use that concentration, that 
our calm and tranquility in order to delve into insight, then we're making even better karma. And then if we should actually get the insight, have that experience, the understood experience, then one day we can stop making karma. Um, another question. Some, some entities or beings become enlightened at death. Yeah, some people, yes. Yeah. No, the Buddha said it's easier. It's easier. Easier, because you have to give up the body. Uh, you, you're forced to. And uh, at that moment, if one has practiced, at that moment, having to give up the body means giving up this identification with this is me, totally, from here to there. Having to give that up and being already in a state of... Um, acceptance and non-resistance, it is a possibility. And that was mentioned several times by the Buddha. And one of his very famous uh, supporters, um, Anatta Pindika, who was a millionaire and supported the Buddha greatly, uh, became a stream-enterer at the time of death. <coughs> and his own father became a stream-enterer at time of death. Because you do have to give up. And in order to have that experience of non-me, non-I, you've got to give up. Give up completely. <coughs> so at death that is facilitated for some who have, a, who have practiced. If somebody has no idea about this whole thing, it would be unlikely. It's possible, but it's not likely. But somebody who has heard all these things and knows about it might find that okay. Yes, making merit is making good karma. And the more good karma one makes, the more of the support system one has. And as one uses that support system of a good life for practice, certainly. And the more good karma one has made, the more choices one has. Not necessarily all good choices. That one has to make oneself. But the more the choices are. If, uh, you know, if one is, let's say, one has uh, really tried to help other people a lot, and uh, then those people are very grateful and uh, one has a choice of uh, being with them or going somewhere else, which before that nobody knew about it. Nobody would have invited one. Right? So these uh, the choices do uh, get enlarged much more, but one has to make them oneself. Uh, does the self make choices, I Yes, the me. Sure. So the enlightened person is not making any choices. He makes choices, but without the me. I mean, to the extent that one is aware... <laughs> you can't logically do it. You've got to experientially do it. <laughs> to be done experientially. But in the review process, one, is, one should be able to explain it. Afterwards, of course. <laughs> <laughs> of course. <laughs> review means <so> again seeing. <laughs> we should be patient. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Anything else? Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments.
think of all the good things that you've ever done in your life. Like a recollection of your generosity, of your loving kindness, of your helpfulness, of your care for others, your friendship. Look at all that. Let go of everything else. Just that. And then extend your love to yourself, knowing that all those good things are inherent in you and have manifested. Fill yourself with the warmth of love and the peacefulness of acceptance. Put your attention on the person sitting nearest you in this room and think of all the good things that that person has done in his or her life, either knowing these things or surmising them, particularly the effort of meditation, the effort of noble silence, of self-discipline. Fill him or her with the warmth of your love and embrace him or her with the peacefulness of complete acceptance. Now think of everyone who is here and think of everyone's good deeds, the effort of meditation, the effort at self-discipline, and fill everyone with the warmth of your love and the peace of complete acceptance.
think of your parents and remember all the good things that you know about them. Fill them with your love. Embrace them with acceptance. Which brings peace to your and their hearts. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and think of all the good things that they have done, of all their good qualities, everything you know about them. And then fill them with the warmth of your love, embrace them with the peacefulness of your acceptance, accepting them completely. Now think of your friends and remember all the good things about them that you know, particularly their friendship for you. Remember any good deeds that you can still know, their good qualities. Give them the gift of your love and your acceptance.
think of other people you know, neighbors, acquaintances, relations, people you work with, people you meet. Think of the good qualities that you either know or surmise in each person. And then fill them with the gift of your love and embrace them with complete acceptance. Think of anyone whom you don't like or whom you find difficult or towards whom you're indifferent and think of that person's good qualities, good deeds, either known or those that you can imagine. And then fill him or her with the warmth of love and the peacefulness of complete acceptance. Think of the goodness in people that manifests in their lives, looking after their families, doing their duty, carrying their responsibilities. Think of people everywhere. And imagine the good things that people do, wherever you can think of it. And let your love flow to them. Recognizing the difficulties that human beings have.
put your attention back on yourself and rejoice in your own efforts. Accept whatever you find as the nature of a human being. And give yourself the warmth of love, being immersed in that warmth. May there be love and acceptance amongst people everywhere.